We black folk are the tragic men. I say tragic, not pathetic. My people are heroic. Tragedy, irony, and paradox have dogged our heels at every turn and sickened our hearts and souls and frustrated our profoundest dreams in this homeland of the brave and free. Most men reached these shores seeking freedom. We black men came here to be slaves. There is the terrible paradox in this vast and tragic land. The so-called founding fathers of this nation held our forefathers in human bondage. Slave masters who loved the freedom and the leisure they could afford by having their black slaves do all the work. Washington and Jefferson were freedom-loving slave masters. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, except in black and red men, and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, except in men of pigmentation naturally. We black folk have been sowers, never reapers, in this land of opportunity. Listen to the great white mother, Statue of Liberty, mother of exiles, as she stands at the mouth of New York Harbor. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Black brothers and sisters everywhere know that those beautiful words were not meant for us. We know the great white green gill mother is not beckoning to us, notwithstanding poet Emma Lazarus, who wrote this immortal verse, was herself an avid abolitionist. This is, of course, another way of saying that black folk historically must of necessity look upon this great and powerful nation from a different vantage point. Our cups runneth over with irony and paradox. Our perspective is different. Our vision unique among all other Americans. What do we mean by the black writer's vision for America? We are raising the question of how does the black writer, reflecting his black perspective, his black consciousness, look upon this nation's past? How does he evaluate its present? And what kind of future does he envision for this nation? and the world, and make no mistake about it, there simply is no hiding place on earth from the American significance. What black men do to change this nation has significance for the entire universe. Every nook and corner of this earth is affected by what we do in Detroit, in Harlem, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, in the District of Columbia, and all over these United States of America. In a very real sense, African Americans are the freedom fighters for the world. 
There's this story of the days of slavery of a slave named Andrew. Now, Andrew was an industrious and ambitious slave, greatly admired by his kindly master. Indeed, it was a kind of mutual admiration society between this loyal slave and this kindly master. As you have already guessed, Andrew was a house slave. He related to his master more than to his black brothers and sisters deep down in the cotton patches. And it must be said, in terms of giving the devil his due, even though I haven't the vaguest notion why this devil should be given his due, but giving him his due nevertheless, it must be said that he was an his master was extremely fond of Andrew, so much so that he let him work once in a while away from the old plantation and earn a little money for himself. One day, Andrew played the lottery and won a thousand dollars. He didn't stop running until he reached the big house. How much money am I worth? Andrew asked old master. Why, what do you mean, Andrew? I wouldn't think of selling you down the river. Andrew came back with, but peace, master. I mean, I want to buy my own self. How much will you sell me to me for? The master answered, in that case, Andrew, it would cost you $999. Whereupon Andrew said, thank you very much, and beat a hasty retreat. One of his signifying brothers, a field slave, having overheard the dialogue, said to Andrew, man, why didn't you buy your freedom? You just won $1,000. Andrew replied, Negroes too expensive right long in here. I'm going to wait until they get cheaper. Irony, paradox, tragic humor, in the latter third of the 20th century, many black folk have decided that no price is too dear to pay for freedom. Freedom by any means possible. Question number one, what price is the black writer prepared to pay to liberate his people and this bloody nation? Well, make no mistake about it. The truth comes at a very exorbitant price and pays very small immediate dividends. It is the vision that counts, never the immediate dividends. A vision not unlike in depth and scope, the vision of a black writer and prophet who lived who lived for the last almost for the last hundred years, the prophet William Edward Burgard Du Bois. He paid a dear price for the truth he told, put in handcuffs like a common criminal when he was in his eighties. This gentle giant, distinguished and respected throughout the earth, America's greatest intellectual, was persecuted by the power structure of this nation, and very few black men came to his defense. And now at this very moment, his wife, the great Shirley Graham Du Bois, is refused a visa to visit the land of her birth. One lesson to be learned from all this is that we black folk must choose our own leaders, our own spokesmen, and must never turn against them when the power structure does. The magnificent Paul Robeson also paid the price for telling black truths to the nation and the world, as did Brother Malcolm and finally Brother Martin Luther King, the Latter-day Messiahs. As we walked two years ago in Atlanta and Brother Martin's funeral, many of us in the black artist contingent took solemn oaths that this was the last funeral of a black 
beloved assassinated leader that we would march in peacefully, sorrowful and crying and singing freedom songs. No more, no more weeping. This was the last time we would flood this heartless nation with all those black tears of compassion. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. Well, of course, we all know there was a tiny bit of fire this time. At the turn of the 20th century, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois put the Western world on notice that the problem of the 20th century was the problem of the color line. The relationship of the Western world with the peoples of color in Africa and Asia and the islands of the sea. Years later, the same man wrote with even greater certainty, quote, most men in the world are colored. A belief in humanity means a belief in colored men. The future world will, in all reasonable possibility, be what colored men make it, end of quote. In 1955, the late Pan-Africanist George Patmore wrote in comment on Du Bois's prophecy, quote, this is the inescapable challenge of the second part of the 20th century, end of quote. Question number two, how will black folk and specifically black writers meet this challenge of the 20th century? What kind of a world are we going to make and how do we go about it? Yes, Du Bois was a great prophet, but who would listen to a black prophet in that far off era in the good old days of endless frontier and glorious empire at the turn of the 20th century when Western man thought he, he could rule the roost forever or at the very least for another thousand years? Who could bring themselves to believe that the literature of black men could have a social relevance? Who could believe that black men could have vision? In those days, the relevant literature was filled with characters who were free, white, and 21, which was tantamount to possessing all the keys to the kingdom. It was a time when figures like the great apologist for colonialism, Rudyard Kipling, wrote, take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed, go bind to your sons in exile to serve your captives' need weight and heavy harness on flooded folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. It was a time when the literature was filled with burning incense to the noble savage, personified in the likes of Uncle Tom and Aunt Jemima and good old Gunga Den. Dear old Gunga Den, who despite his dirty hide, he was white all white inside as he went to fetch the water under fire. In the Hollywood version, good old white inside Gunga blew the trumpet for the British against his own people. And just how whiter inside could a noble savage be? Notwithstanding, the prophecy of the great black prophet has come to pass. Observe how the world has changed since the second worldwide madness. Look at the United Nations that organization that started out as a gentleman's agreement, an exclusive club of great white fathers, paternalistic trustees of three quarters of the world's peoples. Look at it today. This, despite the words of the last of the great Anglo-Saxons, I mean, of course, Sir Winston Churchill, who proclaimed to one and all 
that he had not taken over the reins of her Britannic Majesty's government to administer over the dissolution of the British Empire. Recall that little island's arrogant boast that the sun never set on the British Empire. But Sir Winston notwithstanding, the sun does set on the empire of that foggy little island separated from the rest of Europe by the English Channel. The British Empire is dissolving. Queen Elizabeth is the last of the great white mothers. And so we see the world does move, inquisitions notwithstanding. And the question is, where do black writers wish to take the world at this moment in time and space? What kind of trip are we preparing? How do we turn the people on? Western man has used language, words, words as a powerful weapon to enslave the rest of mankind. And now we black writers must use our language, Afro-Americanese, to re redefine ourselves. We black folks are a colony on the mainland. I've heard colored musicians themselves say, quote, I don't play jazz, spiritual, rhythm, and blues, and that kind of stuff. I play serious music. I am saying that these brothers have been had. The only serious American music has been produced by black musicians. The language has enslaved them, enslaved us just as it has enslaved on one level or another every black brother and sister in this nation. One of the right black writers' tasks is to decolonize the language. Good hair and high yellow and nigger will have no place in Afro-Americanese one of these days and soon if the black artist does his job. As a black writer, I have a vision of black people all over this nation beginning a pilgrimage back home to their black consciousness. Come on home, come on home wherever you are, brothers and sisters, come on home. Black artists have proclaimed homecoming week for 52 weeks and every year. And now I take the position that all black men want to be free. Yes, even Uncle Tom and Aunt Jemima and good old Gunga Den. It's time for homecoming week to be also rehabilitation week. It's time for us to help Uncle Tom straighten up and straighten out his back and throw his shoulders back and come home. Black writers must contribute to the creation of a black vision for the world. For centuries, our vision has been a white, Western-oriented vision. We have looked at our black selves throughout, through the eyes of white America. We are the only people on earth whose God was created in the image of another man, and that is psychological homicide, suicide. We have worshiped a Messiah with pale face and blue eyes, and this is not to derogate Jesus Christ. I have nothing but profound respect and admiration for him. I believe that Jesus lived. Yes, I believe he was the great revolutionary of his time. I believe that's why they lynched him. There is every indication that he was a man of color. But now that Medgar and Malcolm and Martin have departed, it can be said that black folk need not look for their Messiah any longer. They have come, they have given the word, fought the good fight, and they have been crucified. Brothers and sisters, did you not take notice of the fall of the full eclipse of the moon a few nights after Brother Martin's funeral? Many, a couple, quite a few years before the prediction by the awesome men of science. 
The messiahs have gone and we must create a new calendar for black people and for the disinherited all over this terrible, wonderful earth. Everything before Martin must be dated BM. Everything after Martin, after the messiahs, after Malcolm, after Medgar, must be dated AM. And be not fooled, brothers and sisters, by the public washing of hands and the oceans of obscene tears the nation wept two years ago over television, over the passing of our Messiah. It was for the most part strictly a command performance, a three-ring circus of hypocrisy. Leaders, preachers, politicians, all of them leaping upon the bandwagon, shamelessly expurgating centuries of guilt, trying to psych black people into thinking that they really cared. It was a revolt in sight, all of those killers weeping at the beer. It reminded me of the old-time mafia movies with the gangster killers attending the funeral, dressed in black, bringing with them tons of flowers, standing at the grave, weeping with the widow. If all with their guns almost in evidence underneath their jackets. If all of Martin's mourners had truly loved him, he would not have been crucified. The kindest thing we can say for them, those honorable representatives of the power structure, is that for centuries they helped to set the stage for this great American tragedy. Where were they when Martin languished in their jails? Where were they when he walked around this world preaching peace on earth? and love for all mankind? Where were they when his enemies sick their dogs on him and beat him with their clubs? Where were they when they nailed him to the cross? How could the men of war who run this government have truly loved Martin when he fought against their atrocious war in Vietnam? And where were we, brothers and sisters, when they nailed our Martin to the cross? Were we there? Martin Luther King was my valued friend. There were certain things about which we disagreed vis-a-vis -vis the tactics of black liberation. But I know he was a revolutionary. I knew he was, and I loved him and respected him, and I am angry past description at the way we let him down. We must build a monument to brothers Medgar, Malcolm, and Martin. The three M's, and M is for Messiah. We must construct the monument, not build, built of stone and mortar, but forged out of their great vision, the vision for freedom and liberation, the vision that the disinherited shall inherit the earth. Their vision calls for, upon black writers to write our own black history, create our own myths and legends. Washington and Jefferson do not belong to our black children. They are not the founding fathers of our black children. They are not our legendary heroes. They are our foreparents, slave masters. No amount a falsification of history can disguise this brutal fact. Our legendary heroes are Nat Turner, Frederick Douglass, Denmark Vesey, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Toussaint Louverture, White John Brown, and Red Sitting Bull, and Garvey, and Du Bois, and Robeson, and Medgar, and Malcolm, and Martin, and many thousands more, of whom most of us have never heard. One of the cruelest acts of Western man was to build a fence between man and man and thereby sentence humankind to loneliness. It is obvious that he meant by this to fence the rest of humanity out. Well, what he has succeeded in doing is fencing himself in.
And now at this moment in history, alas, too late, he wants to gather everybody into the old corral with himself as the great white rancher and brand every human in the Western image. But our black vision is to tear the fences down. But of course, the first task facing black folk in this country is to unify themselves for the terrible days ahead. It is time for some black writers, the more the merrier, to move from social protest to affirmation and liberation. Every black writer worth his bread is a revolutionary of sorts. Speaking for myself, each time I sit down to the typewriter, I'm out to rock the boat, to change the world, to break the world down bit by bit, and forge it into something different, something altogether new and different, to create a new image and a new vision for mankind, which will encompass, in the words of Margaret Walker, all the Adams and Eves and their countless generations. Our black vision for the country and the world is vastly different from the white writer's vision, too many of whom are the best that money can buy, and they have been bought and paid for, believe it. Men who get 50000 to to $100,000 a year for writing such masterpieces as the Dodge Rebellion and come alive during the Pepsi generation, and is it true that blondes have more fun than anybody, and so forth. How can I relate to a writer like that who thinks he's writing serious literature? Yes, it is time for liberation writers to dramatize the revolution, the revolution which hasn't even started yet, to glorify the freedom fighters of Detroit and Washington, Harlem and Watts and Chicago. I personally am not an advocate of burn, baby, burn, because I think it's suicidal and means nothing at this point for our people but misery and pain and death and disillusionment. Survival and liberation through black unity must motivate our every action. But I dig, yet I dig, the motivations of all the valiant freedom fighters, wherever they are. Black writers will create a new vision for man, a vision of love and life as opposed to hate and death. And now let me make it clear that the question of love and hate between black and white Americans is a total irrelevance as far as I am concerned. I neither need to hate the white man or to love him, but white men insist that you either hate them or love them. They do not care which. As long as you are so obsessed with them, you do not have time to get, take care of business of black liberation, to get your own black thing together. But love is a question we will take up with Charlie three or four hours after liberation, notwithstanding our long-range vision is one of life and love, a vision oriented to man, not to thing. Muntu, an African word meaning roughly man, man-oriented, man in the center of the universe. Glorify man, not automobiles, not jet airliners, not atomic weapons. Yes, black writers must dramatize against this ugliness which has seized the world, where the most powerful nations spend billions of dollars for moon trips and weapons of destruction while men starve all over this earth in the very midst of plenty. In the words of Martin Luther King, America can put a man on the moon, but cannot put a black man on his feet in Mississippi. This is a perversion of human images, and black writers must scream damnation on it. In the real sense, colored people throughout the world were sentenced by Western man to centuries of silence. Now, at this historic moment, it is time for us to speak. 
to speak in vindication for every human in the world who has ever been called or ever forced to live the life of a so-called nigger, which will mean, of course, that all mankind will at long last be vindicated. Everywhere Western man went on earth, Christianizing, civilizing, he made men into so-called niggers, the better to conquer and exploit, and made men believe they were niggers. To denigerize the earth is the black writer's challenge. To rid the world of niggers is the task of the black liberation movement.